Welcome to Roots Radio, weekly high school Bible studies located at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. John chapter 12 this morning. Sorry, verse 9. Let's read verse 9 together and then let's, uh, let's pray. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom they had raised, or whom he had raised from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and uh, Lord, we thank you for this weekend, Lord, and the work that you did Friday night. God, so cool to see so many give their life to you, and, and to see people get saved, and Lord, we pray that this year, Lord, as we dig in and, and seek to build your kingdom here and, and to see you, uh, see your name be made great, Lord, we see more people that would come to know you. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would strengthen the saints here, God, that you would um, give us strength this morning, those that are tired and, and um, Lord, just kind of are feeling sick and restless. Lord, we pray that you would Help us to focus in, Lord, to hear from you today. God, that we would give you this time, and, and Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. So, Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for all that you do for us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, verse 9 this morning, and leading us into the rest of the, the section today. I don't know how far we'll get, but um, just to give you context, last week we went through verses 1 through 8, looking at this miracle, uh, kind of the, the after effects of the miracle. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And in chapter 12, we looked at worship and what worship is and how we are to worship, having a heart of worship, um, who the, the focus of worship is or who it's on. And uh, that's kind of where we were last week as we saw um, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha. She anointed Jesus' feet with costly oil, and she began to wipe them with her hair in an act of worship, and a sign of worship. And Jesus says, this is a sign of my burial. And that kind of leads us into this next little section of Scripture. Jesus is going to be entering into the last week of his life. Ugh. Dude, my eyes just, like, freaked out. Has that ever happened to you where your eyes, like, have to close? It's never happened to me while I was teaching, but it just did. Whoa. Ah! <laughs> it's really hard to read when you can't see. All right. Moving on. All right, so this is, um, we're leading, or getting into the final week of Jesus' life. And today, as we get through the triumphal entry of Christ into the city of Jerusalem, it marks the last six days of his life. So from chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, all the way to 22, right? There's 22 chapters in the, in the Gospel of John. 23? 22? 21? 21. All the way through 21, we're looking at this final like week of his life. So things are ramping up, and there's going to be a jam-packed, kind of everything's packed into this last week of his life uh, here on the earth. But in verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom, they, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. 
The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, in verses 9 through 11, a lot of people, as Jesus is there in Bethany, we talked about where Bethany is. Bethany is on the other side of the Mount of Olives. It's, it's the same mountain. It's just on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus is, is spending time with his family. And while he's there, many people have come to the house. They're having this great feast. And they're kind of all uh, partying together and, and just celebrating with the Lord. And um, but a lot of people came not with the purpose of seeing Jesus. They came to see this guy, Lazarus, who at one point was dead and is not dead anymore. At one point was in the grave for three, three days, three plus days. And now he's sitting at a table having dinner with them. And they came to see this the kind of the object of this miracle and as Jesus comes and, and all these people come to meet him there they are sitting at a table with Lazarus who once was dead and we see that many people are coming to faith as a result of that people are coming to faith in Jesus as a result of Lazarus's life that he was dead and when he died he allowed his life to be used by God as he was raised back to life and people were coming to faith in Jesus because of that instance because of that moment because of that time and we see Lazarus being an effective witness for Jesus just by being who he was and and through his life people are coming to know Jesus that at one point he was dead and now he's alive and and that is the same and true of our life as well how do we be an effective witness for Jesus how do we be an effective witness for Christ in the days that we're living it's very simple. You just keep living for Jesus. And, and your testimony is this, that once you were dead, and now you've been brought to life in Christ. And that speaks volumes to a, a generation or a people that are still dead in their sins and trespasses. That although we once were dead, we've been brought back to life in Christ, and that's all that Lazarus, he just simply sat at a table and ate with Jesus, and people were getting saved as a result of his life. How do we be effective witnesses for the Lord? It's just simply by loving Jesus. Keep following after him. Keep setting that, that bar high for yourself in your relationship with the Lord. And allow God to use your life. And as you just walk through our life, and I want to encourage you guys, it's very important. It is very important that Christians do not just fossilize within their churches and we kind of hide out and isolate ourselves away from everything and and hide in our churches and wait out for the rapture and get a shotgun and just kind of hold out and and we just kind of become those nuke bunker people that hide in churches and never have any, you know those people? preppers we're just we're hiding inside this dome of of our church and we never have any contact with an outside world because outside of these walls are people that are going to hell unless they know Jesus now how many people in your life do you know that don't know the Lord and you're okay with them going to hell you're okay with it I was at my aunt's funeral last weekend. She was 80 years old. 
She flew planes for a living. She flew those little, those little things, you know. It's not like a plane. It's like a motor with wings. Um, she flew those planes uh, for her whole life. She loved flying, and she had her own flying school, and she, like, trained people how to fly, and, and they loved life. I mean, they flew everywhere. She used to race cross-country. She'd do all these cross-country races, and they were in their 80s, and my uncle was 84, and they were taking off uh, a week ago. October 8th, they were flying out of Idaho. A storm had come through, and it messed up their instruments, and they had a, a lady flying with them, and she was the one flying the plane, and as it took off, right as it took off, it crashed in the mountains, caught on fire, and they died. Now, we're sitting at their funeral, and they knew Jesus, they knew the Lord, but we're sitting in this airport, like, terminal, and I'm looking around at my family, and I'm looking around at all these people that don't know the Lord, and I begin to ask myself, now, which ones am I okay with them going to hell for all eternity? And I found myself all of a sudden kind of just stirred up to the reality that death is a real reality for all of us. 10 out of 10 people die. We don't know when it happens. We don't know when it will take place. We don't know how long our race will be. But we do know that death is inevitable. We can't escape it. Now, we know Jesus. If you know the Lord, there's this hope beyond the grave that this life is not it. We will spend eternity with Christ forever with him in glory. And we can't wait for that day. Now, how many people do we know that aren't, that is not their destiny? That's not where they're going. How do we be an effective witness to them that we might bring them with us to heaven? Hell is not a place that we would desire anyone to go. Someone once said that hell is not a place that you would desire your worst enemy to go because of how gruesome and how horrible hell will be. There's this picture that is painted of hell throughout cartoons and I don't know, if you, like the old cartoons. My kids love those old cartoons, like the old hand-drawn cartoons, uh, Mickey Mouse and you know, Donald and all that. And that we watch them sometimes and there's this picture that is painted of hell, that hell is is just this bright place that there's like flames in the corner and the devil's actually really funny and he's just like, ha, 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 I'm the devil. And it's just kind of this, this manipulation of what hell really looks like or we see paintings and now magnify what you may think hell to be like by a thousand and that is, is actually the picture of hell. It, it is so much worse than we could ever imagine. The Bible describes it as outer darkness, that there will be fire, gnashing of teeth, and burning for all eternity, for all eternity, that there is no such thing as an, abs a, a, an absorption of life, that you will continue to live. The hell's a real place. Jesus spoke on it more than he spoke on heaven. Okay, so if that's the reality, that you will go one of two places, heaven or hell, how do we as the church be an effective witness to a Christ-rejecting world? It's not here that we need to witness for the Lord. It's out there. When we leave this place, when you leave the four walls of your church, we need to engage culture with the gospel. Now, the Bible is very clear that we are not of the world. We are not of the world. But we cannot help but be in it. And we must be in it. 
right? We're alive. You got to be in the world. It's just part of life. We're in it, but we're not to be of it. It's like a boat. A boat lives in water most of the time, unless it's in your driveway. But boats are meant to be in the water. That's what it's for. Now, the minute water gets in the boat, you're in trouble. We're in the world for the sole purpose of knowing Jesus outside of these walls and bringing Jesus outside of these walls to people who do not know him. Because their destiny apart from Jesus is hell. It's truth. And the way that we be an effective witness is you keep charging and loving Jesus. Allow him to use your life in the world that you're in. To be an effective light for the Lord in the world that you live in. Just by simply being. Lazarus' whole, his whole testimony he, was, he didn't have this testimony of like, I was a drug addict, and I was, a, I was an alcoholic man, and I've been spending time in prison, and God saved me. His, his whole testimony was, I was dead, and now I'm alive. That's it. People saw a radical change in his life. That one, at one point, this guy was in the grave, and now he's not. Who does that? Who can do that? Who has the power to do that? And Lazarus would say, he does. His point across the table, this guy did it. And that's how we are to be as well. At one point we were dead and sinned in trespasses. If you know Jesus, you've been brought into life. And all you do is point to Jesus. How did that happen? He did it. Jesus does it. And that's how we are to be an effective witness in this world. But listen, you got to be in it. We can't hide. We can't hide within our churches. We can't hide within our homes. We must engage with an intentional attitude of engaging the world with the gospel. It starts within your own home a lot of times. They came because on the count of him, many Jews went away and believed in Jesus. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, which is one of the funniest verses in all of the Bible. Lazarus was dead. He was brought back to life by Jesus. And the religious people of the time said, you know what we got to do? We got to kill this fool. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. Religious people are dumb and they do stupid things. Here's what you got <laughs> This guy was once dead. He was brought back to life. And our answer for, for bring, you know what we're going to do? We're going to kill him. Because that will solve the problem. And, and this is what was happening. Jesus was ha creating a following out of miracles and things that he was doing. People were seeing, this is the Messiah. They were leaving the, the religious leaders as their, their spiritual fathers and following after Jesus. And they're saying, this has got to stop, man. We're losing followers here. You know what we should do? Let's kill him. And what's really funny is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these religious leaders that made up the group of religious leaders that we're talking about, the Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in resurrection after the grave. It was not part of their theology. But yet they're witnessing it in, in flesh and blood that this guy was dead and now he is alive. And they're like, we don't believe in a resurrection. So let's kill him again. <laughs> it's just it's funny the Bible's funny moving on verse 11 because of one account of him many believe okay verse 12 the next day a great multitude had come 
to the feast. And when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches to, of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus went and he found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, the king or your king is coming, sitting on a donkey on a colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when, they call, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In verses 12 through 19, we have recorded for us the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus at this point has been doing miracles in the area of Galilee. He's been in, in different areas around Jerusalem. And we saw in, in the chapters previous that he set his eyes toward Jerusalem and began to make his way up towards Jerusalem. He encamps on the other side of the Mount of Olives. There he is standing or, or spending time in Bethany. And the time has come at the, at the feast, the time of Passover. His disciples, they go and find a donkey. You guys know the story. They find a colt that has never been sat on, and they bring it to Jesus. He sits on it, which is a miracle in and of itself, and he begins to make his way down the Mount of Olives. Because when you look at Jerusalem, anytime you go to Jerusalem, you're making your way up towards Jerusalem. And when this happens, the people begin to break off palm branches, which is interesting, and they begin to lay them on the road. And Jesus is riding in on a donkey. Now, this is a picture when a king would come back from war. Or a king would come into the city. If he was coming in peace, he would ride on a donkey. A donkey was a symbol of peace. And so here's Jesus riding on this little colt. It had never been sat on. And he's riding it into the city. And he's making his way down, down the Mount of Olives. It's a pretty steep little hill. And he would make his way up into or onto the southern steps into Jerusalem. This is predicted or told of in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And when the people begin to sing, they sing Psalm 118, verse 26. It was this messianic psalm. And they're singing, this is it. This is our Messiah. This is him. And the disciples, I love that John records, he says, we were doing these things. And what we didn't realize until Jesus was taken up and glorified is that we were fulfilling prophecy. What the Bible had foretold and said what would happen, we were in that moment fulfilling that very prophecy. That some four hundred years of silence and previously before that, that this was predicted that Jesus would come in this way. He would ride into the city on a donkey. The rabbis had this teaching that if the people were ready for their Messiah, he would come riding in on a horse. If they weren't ready, he would be riding in on a donkey. Jesus rides in on a donkey because they were not ready in the sense that their sins had not been forgiven. Now this first coming was predicted and it happened. We have it recorded for us in Scripture. 
His first coming was predicted. He came, he rode in, he died on a cross. Now there's also a second coming that is predicted. Jesus said, not only if I go, know that I'm coming again to receive you unto myself. He went one time, he came, and he's coming again. We have scripture unfolding for us and coming true as it was predicted. Prophecy taking place. Again, another proof of who Jesus was and that he is who he says that he was. And that he's coming again. But he's not, only, he's not coming on a donkey this time. He's not coming in peace. He's coming on a horse. A big, stinking Cavallo Blanco. He's riding on a white horse. And he has a sword with him. And he comes to make war. He comes to make war. But before that second coming, where he rode in on the Mount of, coming down on a donkey on the Mount of Olives, in his second coming, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, and that Mount of Olives is going to split in two, the Bible tells us. And we, we are radically coming towards that day. The second coming of Christ is more a reality today than it has ever been. If you look at the situation in the Middle East, you look at Russia and what Russia's doing with Iran, and, and the Middle East is setting itself up exactly as Scripture has said that it would. Exactly the way that the Bible says that the end of the world will unfold, we are setting, we're, we're seeing it on the news. You can look on your Twitter feed and see the, that everything is setting up the way that God said it would. But prior to the second coming of Jesus, there is an event that will take place that we are looking forward to, and that is the rapture of the church. That is the event that we are looking for. And the rapture is closer than it has ever been. Ever been. And what, Jesus, and what we see from the triumphal entry of Christ is that if he came once, he is coming again. We as the church need to be about our Father's business in this world. The second coming of Christ is not something that we as the church, we want to see if we're not raptured. Because if you see him coming and you haven't been raptured, you're going to go through the tribulation. That is a reality that the Bible teaches. You want to go in the rapture. You don't want to have to experience what the, the tribulation will bring. Verse 20. Actually, what time is it? That clock's totally wrong. 10.20. Okay, we got time. Here we go. Are you with me? Everyone awake? Everyone sit up. Shake it out. Shake it out. I know we got that post-Halloween. It's weird. There's some verses you don't want to miss. You don't have to stand. All right, you can stand up if you want. (laughs) I know these chairs are your favorite. and They're super comfy. Verse 20, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, or Bethsaida and of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus answered, saying to them, The hour has come. The Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. 
And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Jesus says here, Most assuredly I say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. If we were to take a a seed and tape it right here to this pulpit, and we came back next year, guess what? That seed most likely would still be here, but it would just be a seed. And the next year, and the next year, the next year, there it would be still taped to this pulpit. But if we take that seed and we put it in the ground, and through its death, it would bring about life. Jesus tells his disciples and those that are there, he's predicting his own death. And what he's telling them is that when this seed dies, meaning when I go and I die on the cross, when I'm lifted up, I pass away, it is to bring you life. That through death brings life. Isn't it? It's such a paradox. And there's so many different paradoxes in scripture. But that is a paradox, that through death would come life. Jesus is saying here, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain that through my death will produce much life. That through the death of Jesus and his resurrection upon the cross, we have eternal life by faith in him. And the same goes in our life. That when we die to the flesh... The crucifixion of our own flesh and our own fleshly desires that we have, life can come through our life. That it produces much fruit in our life. The death of self, the death of the flesh brings about life in the believer, in the life of the Christian. And there's something about the Old Testament that God loved the smell of burning flesh. Sacrifice after sacrifice. Just this barbecue scent. How many of you love that smell? Like when you leave a barbecue, you smell like mesquite that that has been shoveled. You smell like hamburgers. I don't know, that smell that you carry. I had a friend named Jeff that many of you have met. At winter camp, he shaved his mustache while he was teaching. You remember that guy? Jeff. He, um, I should put context to that that story. Anyway, um, my friend Jeff, he doesn't eat vegetables. Um, he's, almost, he's 30 years old, hates vegetables, won't eat them. Um, he eats cheeseburgers. Um, he basically eats meat and bread and pizza. That's his diet. That's what he consists of. Now, when he sweats, he would smell like cheeseburgers. He would get all sweaty and you would smell pizza coming from him. Whatever he would eat that day, it would come out of him. He just, man, something smells like burgers. He's like, it's me, I'm... I'm sweaty. He was so ingrained, so ingrained with with just bad food, it would come pouring out of him. Now, to give you a terrible analogy, listen, when, when, when our flesh is crucified and put to death, it is this wonderful smell to the Lord. The smell of, not rotting, but burning flesh. Burning flesh. It was this wonderful smell sent to the Lord. When we crucify the flesh, and listen, either the flesh lives or the spirit lives. It cannot coexist. So when you feed the flesh, the flesh will overpower the spirit. It will push it out. But when you feed the spirit, it will overcome the flesh. It pushes the flesh out. And what Jesus is saying here is that when we put it to death, 
When we crucify the flesh, life comes. A life that is given through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to stop there this morning because you guys are falling asleep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, we desire that through the death of the flesh in us, God, that we might live in the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word in reminding us of the reality, Lord, that heaven and hell is, is a breath away for so many. And God, we pray that you would light in us a fire that burns to see people know you. Lord, that we would not be okay and fine with people going to hell. Jesus, that you would begin in us just this overwhelming um, desire to see people come to know you. Lord, we pray that you'd shake us up out of apathy and shake us out of, of just this Southern California mentality. That we would look outside of ourselves and see that there are people that need you so badly. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us that if, if we ask you, Lord, you will come and you will dwell in us. You'll make our heart your home. So, Lord, we, we ask today, Lord, that your presence would fall on us, God, that we'd be blessed by your presence, God. Lord, we worship you today. We thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. We thank you for the gift of salvation. And, Lord, help us to, to share that gift with others. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We, we give you praise this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.